We have started a series called What If, and uh, we didn't have our projector last week because it broke, so we didn't have the screen, but this is our, this is our logo um, for this series, and it, it kind of puts shivers in, my, in me because it reminds me of school, um, because that's what it's supposed to look like. We, we ask questions in school. Uh, we ask questions because we want to learn. We want to take information or we want to receive information that maybe we have thought about, maybe we haven't thought about. That was my experience in school. I have never thought about that before in my life. Um, But when we are posed with the material or the questions, we want to find answers. Sometimes we carry around questions for days, years, a lifetime. We carry around questions that sometimes we don't fully get the answers for. Sometimes the reason we don't get answers is because we don't ask the questions, right? So sometimes we carry around questions, but sometimes we have questions, but they're way over here in the far recesses of our mind, and when they poke their head out, we shove them back down because we don't really want to deal with what the answer might be. So we thought, well, why not go ahead and put some of those questions out before us and talk about it? Instead of us all, or maybe some of us, or maybe many of us, I don't know, in the room, um, pushing them away and not thinking about them. And so last week we started off our series, we actually started on Easter, uh, about what if, what if Christ or what if Jesus rose from the dead. And we talk, talked about that. And then last week we talked about what if there is only one God. And this week we're going to start in a, into a two-part series on suffering. Why does God allow suffering? And in, 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 embedded within that question is if there is suffering, and let's go ahead and expand suffering to if there is evil, if there is gross sin and tragedy and brokenness in our world, where is God? How in the world... If you say, Pastor, and I'll, I'll be the punching bag for you this morning. If you say, Pastor, if the Bible says that God is good, why in the world is he allowing all this stuff to go on? Why, and, and we all have a TV or a, a computer or a phone that we can read the most up-to-date news and we get more graphic illustration in volume of the depravity and brokenness of our world than ever before. So we see it. But we don't even have to do that. For most of us, we can, we can chronicle our own lives. And we don't have to go back very far to have touched on evil or sickness or brokenness that disturbs our life. And if we're really honest, we don't have to look at a TV or a computer or chronicle the life around us, but we can look into our own hearts And we can find that ugliness, that depravity that makes us shudder. So where is God? And of course, we can think about this in a number of ways. If this is happening, then God is either not good, he's, he's sadistic, or he's impotent. Some of us, again, can con- conclude, or he's not there. Or, for us as believers, he is good. 
He is not impotent, but he is powerful. But that he is in the midst of our trial of suffering. That he is, he's not removed himself, but he has become the answer and the um, one who walks a lot aside in the midst of a world that's broken and depraved in sin destroyed. Amen? So we've got to figure where we land on that. Last week we talked about the existence of God, so I'm not going to go there today. I might come back next week. We'll talk about this topic in two Sundays, but I might come back next week with a philosophical argument to talk about the existence of God, but I'm not going to go there today. I am going to remind us uh, that last week we said or we looked at the Bible in Hebrews 11, verse 6, and we read this, that it is impossible to please God without faith because we must first believe that He exists. In order to, have, in order to demonstrate faith, our faith is demonstrated by first believing that God exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. So we're going to start out this morning believing that God does exist or a God does exist. And then he's going to reward us if we press in and seek him and say, God, I'm not going to run from you this morning on this topic, but I'm going to lean in and I'm going to ask you, who are you? What are you doing? It's my encouragement to you. If we, if we exit today, and this would be my prayer, that we exit this service today and we realize that we can run towards God Because he's safe and because he loves us and he's pursuing us with love versus running from him because we're not sure who he is. That would be our victory this morning. God, we want to run to you this morning. But it's hard when there's so much mess going on down here, isn't it? For those of us who are historians, we don't have anybody anymore that's old enough or at least just a few people that are still old enough to remember the Holocaust, but when we see the pictures of the Holocaust and the, or Holocausts that go on in different countries throughout the world even to today, and we see just the mass murder and the mass graves and the mass hatred for a specific people group, we see and stare into the face of evil. We can see it with ISIS even now. And yet we all see little bits of the, that, that glimpses of that beginnings of that evil in our own lives. What comes over me when I'm just singing praise music in the car and just really worshiping the Lord and then some person cuts me off? Why did you do that? I mean, I, I don't really do that, but sometimes I feel that. How dare you cut me off? Don't you see I'm in this lane? What hap- where does that come from? I'm such a nice person. Where does it come from when, when my kids don't do something that I asked them to do, and I'm like, Aah! I love my kids, but there's something in me that rises up because they're not doing it the way... What's in me when I'm looking at my beautiful wife of 21 years and she says something not exactly the way she should say it to me and doesn't she understand who I am? Ah! Where does that come from? We see a little bit of it in ourselves, don't we? Maybe we see a lot of it in ourselves. Maybe I'm just starting to scratch the surface. 
of what we feel. So before I share this illustration, I want us to, to be careful not to place the evil bad people over here and not take a look at ourselves. But tomorrow is an interesting day, isn't it? Because it's Patriots Day, and it's the Boston Marathon. And a little over a week ago, Sarnov was convicted on all 30 counts brought against him for his role in the Boston Marathon bombings in 2013. Even saying that, we pause, don't we? we? For those of us who are here, and I would assume that most all of us in the room, minus a few visitors, were actually living in the city when it happened. It's one of those moments like September 11th where you remember where you were. And my daughter was uh, in the, um, the, those gardens uh, over there in Jamaica Plain, um, the, the Arboretum. My, my daughter was in the Arboretum. Friends of ours were two blocks away. You kind of remember, you're like, where are my kids? Where's my family? Where are my friends? Right? And then we start getting the news, the graphic detail of what happened. None of the horror of that day will be reversed in our minds, and especially for those that actually really endured it. In all, four people were killed. 264 people were injured, many of them having life-altering injuries, loss of limbs, kids, parents, college students, athletes, citizens, internationals, Bostonians, New Englanders, Americans from five, age of five to 65 were caught in the shrapnel in the destruction of that bomb. The horror of the bombing was epitomized by the testimony of William Richard, who lost his son in the bombing and whose daughter lost her leg. You remember this story? He was able to bring his daughter Jane and his other son Henry to safety and then immediately after the bombing and then went back to check on his wife and his son Martin and found both of them injured, his son critical, who later died. And he had to say goodbye to his son right there for the final time in order to make sure that Jane, his daughter, got the help she needed. I mean, as a dad, you can't even, I can't even read the story, let alone actually look at their faces or remember it without it being emotional for me. It was wicked. It was senseless. It was beyond good. How in the world Is this world full of that kind of suffering, tragedy, horror? And that is just belief. For for us Americans in the room, for those of you who don't live in America, you taste it or see it probably a lot more than we do. The world lives daily under this curse. Sandy Hook, 9-11, Holocaust, natural disasters, tsunami in Japan, earthquakes in Haiti, senseless death. Tragic loss. And it points us to the question, God, are you there? If we believe in God, it causes us to wonder what he actually is like that would allow this kind of horror. If we aren't sure, it seems to bolster our thinking that there is no way there could be a God. Sometimes we think that, or some of us have. It goes like this. The logic is is that that the evil in the world tells us that there either is not a God... Or that God's not good, he's not strong. A God that was all powerful and good would have stopped what happened in Boston, right? He's really good, he's really powerful, at least that's how we think. Or what happened to those children in Newtown, Connecticut? 
He would have prevented the disaster, the tsunami in Japan. He wouldn't have made a world that experiences the horrors of war, of murder, torture, rape, incurable disease, slavery, abuse, genocide. Hey, we've got to say it, don't we? We've got to just go ahead and acknowledge this is the world we live in. What do we do with a God and a faith in the middle of this? We've got to answer these questions so that we can come out the other side with hope and our faith intact in God. Is there any way that a God could be good and allow suffering and horror to exist? Is it possible that a good and all-powerful God could coexist with all the suffering and evil and horror that are a part of this world? This is a fundamental question. How we answer this question, how we answer this question impacts how we live life impacts how we view God. It impacts our eternity. And I believe God is wanting to answer it. He's not hiding from this question. He has a really good answer, I believe. I might not explain it as well as God could explain it. I wish he was here and talked to you right now, but he said, I have to do it. I'll do my best. So, we're going to assume for the sake of this conversation that God exists and take that out of the equation for right now. God exists... And the second thing I want to say is, is that as a, as a follower of Jesus, as a believer in God, I'm, I'm looking at first to the Bible to help frame or understand my philosophical debate or my philosophical question. So, is he good? Uh, is he um, worthy of goodness or is he in and of himself good? I think that one of the facts that there's anything good in the world, let alone survival of the fittest, and death and destruction points to a Savior who's good, to a God who's good. That we even have love, that we even have kindness, that we even have self-sacrifice, I think points to the goodness of God. But what does the Bible say? Psalm 118, 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he's good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And this refrain is repeated throughout the Psalms in the Bible. Psalm 119. You are good, and what you do is good. Psalm 86, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. We were singing that song, Mercy, Mercy. And I was just thinking about the immense mercy that extends from the heart and from God. For the Lord is good, Psalm 100, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Psalm 136 states over and over again that his steadfast love endures forever. In the New Testament, Mark 10, verse 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. James 1, verse 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow. Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Good parts of our life come from God. In 1 John 4, 16, John goes so far as to say that God is love. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So if the Bible says God is good, then we are going to believe for a moment God is good. 
Okay, so God is good. Is he impotent? Is he weak? Is he unable to withstand the fury of evil? Well, that's not how the Bible describes God either. He is all-powerful, Psalm 139. Even before word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. In your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Isaiah 43. When I, God, act, who can reverse it? The implication is no one. Isaiah 14. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Implications? No one. Genesis 18, is there anything too hard for the Lord? No. Matthew 19, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So if God is alive and he's declaring who he is, he is saying of himself, I'm good. Even in the midst of an evil world, I'm good. I'm all powerful. I have not been caught off guard. I wasn't surprised at what happened when sin and evil were introduced into the world. I have a plan. I had a plan. And my plan is good. If you'll believe me and trust me. The question is, do we trust and believe in good? So, in God. So why then? Again, going back to the question, why all this evil? Why does a God who is good and powerful allow this, this suffering, this wickedness to happen? Why create a world, right? Why even start it? If you're all powerful, you're all knowing, you're all good, and you know this is going to happen, why in the world would you create us? Why would you do it? And my answer is love. The answer is because God is love and he loves relationship and he wanted to invite a lot of people that he created in his image to be in relationship with him forever. He wanted to create an extended, growing, and awesome and beautiful family to live with him forever in a mutual love relationship by choice and acceptance. Okay, stay with me, because that probably makes no sense. That has no logical argument right now. Okay, that seriously, Sean, is that your answer? Could somebody else please get up and start up this conversation over? Guys, making no sense. Now let's look at it. So God has a plan, right? He's good and He's all powerful. He's a God of love. First John just said that, and He wants to invite within the Trinity, within the God, Father, and Son. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have been loving each other and living for eternity and fellowship and love, they said, let's create people, men and women, men and women, in our image and invite them to be a part of the party. You're invited. All of you with, with faces like this, you're part of the party. You're part of it. He created you, formed you. We just read that verse, Psalm 139. He knit you together in your mother's womb, and he said, Jonathan Richmond. Come on down. You're the next participant in the love fest of heaven with Jesus. Come on down. I want a relationship with you, 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 you. Tell me when I should stop. All of us, whoever said that is right. Thank you, Marianne, or Mary Lou, or whoever was in that section. Mary Lou, me. All of us. God had a plan from the beginning to create a world in a people who would enjoy Enjoy him, he would enjoy them, 
love one another, have a mutual relationship forever. That was his plan. And so he did that. Genesis 1, he created a world. Remember that? I'm not going to read it all. Remember Genesis 1, he created and he said, it's good. Created, good. Created, good, good, good. Ah, good. Everything I've created is wonderful and good. And he, he put the exclamation point on the whole of creation when he created man and woman. Genesis 1 verse 26, then God said, let us, that's a, that's a reference to the Trinity, it's, it's God three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. We see in this passage of scripture, not only the implicit statement that God said, let's make man and woman in our image, which means like us. And one of the ways that we are made in the image of God is that we have the ability to reason, to choose. We are a part of creation. We create. We rule and reign. We have authority. We are like God, but we are not God's. But we are made in God's image to ultimately, for eternity, fellowship with him. To be like God means to reason, to choose, to create, to love. And by making us like himself in this way, it was a dangerous creation, wasn't it? Well, how is that, Sean? All those things are great. That's awesome. Well, if we are given the choice to choose, that is dangerous. Anybody who is a parent understands that sentence. Son, I want you to know that when you walk down the stairs, this is our house, five feet from down our stairs is the street. I have a son named Isaac. His brain is not fully formed yet. And his chooser is not always the best chooser. But in order for me to allow him to grow up into the man he's got to be, I say to Isaac, Isaac, <laughs> with lots of, lots of coaching and lots of watching, Isaac, when you go down those stairs and you get on that sidewalk, do not walk into the street. <laughs> like, well, why? There's beautiful cars out there. If the ball goes out there, I'm going to go get it. You know, he did no inclination of why I would say that. Because it's dangerous and you'll die. So what? I don't even know what death means. <laughs> Who cares? That sounds, you know, he, he doesn't have all of, the, all of the understanding of what I'm saying. But he is given the opportunity a hundred times a day in our house to choose so that when he is hanging from the top of the bookshelf about to fall on the back of his head and crack it open, that was a choice. Mama chose to leave the room and leave Isaac by himself. Well, yeah, praise the Lord that he's in our life, Mary, is, is the... God made us to choose, but when he gave us the opportunity to choose and reason, it was a dangerous creation because that meant that we could choose to follow him 
and to enjoy paradise like he created it, or we could choose to rebel against him. And mankind chose to rebel, right? Genesis 2.15, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. There had never been death. I'm sure that God had to describe to them what death was like. You will die. Yes, Lord. Okay, and then one chapter later in the story, the serpent, the devil, who was the shrewdest of all the wild animals. We know from Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Revelations 12 about Satan, that he was, uh, an, and he was an, a, a beautiful author, uh, angel of authority. And he chose in his existence to rebel against God because he saw himself as being exalted above God, the scripture says, and he was cast down. He was cast out of heaven along with, with those angels that rebelled with him. And he came and he tempted Adam and Eve and he said this in his own vanity and pride taken down. See, the devil can't do anything to God, so what's he going to try to do? Do something to his creation. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fr- we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, which that is true. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. He tempted them through their reason. They reasoned with the devil and said it was good instead of obeying God, instead of in their ignorance, trusting that God was wiser than the serpent. And they gave themselves over to rebellion and shame and blaming. We see all of that in the following scriptures. They were embarrassed, they felt guilt, and they blamed each other for their sin. Do we, any of us know how that works in our sin? You just have to be married for two days to understand all of those. You're the one that, you're the one, you, you, you. We learn you at an early age. It's your fault. Pointing of the finger. It's a very important thing to learn in a sinful world. You. And they also inherited not only all that, but they inherited death. Just like God said in creation, and man entered into a darkness where the creation was marred, both the physical creation but also human creation was marred by sin. All the way to this very moment, we experience the choice of that sin but also our own sin, don't we? But the problem, so we, we, we say this, so why did you do this to me? Anybody ever said that? I know some of you have because you've shared it with me. God, why did you do this to me? It's your fault. Is it really God's fault? The problem is not God's, it's us. We embody sin. We carry around the mark of death. We are the ones that choose to rebel. 
When Adam's sin, Romans 5 says, sin entered the world, Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to who? To everyone. For every one of us has sinned. And James 1 says, when tempted, no one should say, God tempted me. Because God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But if you are tempted, it's because you're tempted by your own evil desires that live within you. Let's take God off the judgment seat in regards to this equation and say it's really about us. We continue to choose to not trust, obey, or believe in God when we blame him for our sin. So why would God make this way, make the world this way? Why wouldn't he make it differently? Why would he just not do it? Or why wouldn't he make the bad people go away? He chose this plan because he is love. So let's stop for a second. Let's put ourselves in the place of God. Let's look at it this way. Everybody see Bruce Almighty, you're God, right? You're God. Now you're going to fix, Michael, you're going to fix what's going on in the world today. There's problems, there's evil, there's suffering. So what are you going to do? What's God supposed to do? God's got it all screwed up. He's not doing it the right way. Okay, you take over. Now what are you going to do? Right? Well, you have two options, right? You got to get up. Get, you got to get rid of all the bad people, right? Or you can make all the bad people. You can force everybody to do everything the way that you want them to do it, right? So you can either make everybody slaves or robots and make them act exactly how you want them to act, or just get rid of them. Just get rid of all the bad people. First of all, Mister God. Who are all the bad people that you're going to get rid of? And where are you in that equation? That's an interesting equation. Start over. If he starts over, same problem. Starting over is not the issue. It's not the solution. And how about the other one? Well, just, you know, like, why even let us sin, God? Why would you even bring sin into the equation? Just make us all good. Well, that would be kind of like we're robots, wouldn't it be? It'd be kind of like not really a relationship. Those of you who have kids, would you, have, would, would you rather have given birth to robots who do exactly what you've said and say? Mm. Maybe that's not a good question. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Answer that for myself, Jonathan. I'd be faster if I'd be faster if I would have done that. Those of you who are married, would you rather be married to someone who's a robot that tells you tells you that they love you whenever you say you need to love me? I love you, honey. Serve me, I serve you, honey. I am your wife, robot. Those of you with friends, same thing, coworkers. Do we really want robots? Do we really want people that really don't have a choice to do anything but to just be one thing because that's good? Or is that even the definition of love? The definition, I believe, is much more deep, is deeper than that. It's when we have the choice to not love and choose to love. That's when love exists. And that's what God created. 
So is God really evil? Is he really bad when he created an equation that would be dangerous and expose his creation and the opportunity of them to choose to rebel against him and to deny him? Or is he a God that really is good who said, you know what, I'm willing to take the risk because maybe they won't choose to disobey. And if they do choose to disobey, I'm still going to have a plan for them to be redeemed and brought into relationship with me. That is all of a sudden starting to sound like a good God, a God who wants you to be exactly who you've created to be, who are unique and different and one of a kind, who says, I love you and I want to have a relationship with you, but I'm going to give you a choice to love me back. I'm starting to like this evil God better. I'm starting to think that that's not necessarily a bad plan. Way to go, God. I think you got it right. You might be okay. C.S. Lewis says this about pain and suffering. Why would a good God who knows the future allow sin to enter his world? The answer is that love, which is forced, which does not have the opportunity not to love, is really not love at all. True love is the choice to love. Likewise, the person who is beaten into submission or manipulated into submission is not really submitted at all, for they have no other choice. For there to be true love and obedience, there must be the possibility of choosing not to love and obey. Because of this freedom of choice, it is also possible for them to choose truly to do it. So God could have made a world full of robots, but he chose not to. He chose to make Adam and Eve, and he gave them paradise, and then paradise was lost by their rebellion. And he still didn't give up on them, or you and me. That's the beauty of God, the good God, who is all-powerful, who has made a way for us. As a matter of fact, 2 Samuel fourteen fourteen says this, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. He doesn't desire death for us, but he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And what is that way? That way is Jesus. That way is his son coming to this world and dying in our place for our sins so that we who are sinful and broken and rebellious can have the opportunity to have fellowship with a good and loving and all-powerful and just God. That is the mercy of God because Jesus and God are pursuing us even in our sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled and the curse of death was brought on them because it was already set in motion, he said, if you do this, if you rebel, it's sin and it'll bring death. Even at that point, God had a plan to redeem them from death. He loved Adam and Eve. He loved Sean and Mark and Steve and Julie and Joan and Stella. And he loves us. He pursues us even in a rebellion. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. 1 Peter 3. And by the way, when you think about Jesus and suffering, when you think, where is God? Why would he do that? I want you to recognize that God suffers. Right, So in this world of evil, which he did, not, he did not want to happen, he's not the author of evil, he's not tempted by evil, he doesn't do evil, but he experiences the pain of evil that we experience so that we can be set free. He suffered when he didn't have to suffer so that you would have, not have to suffer for eternity. 
To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. When I read three quotes that kind of sum all this up by a couple of theologians. Peter Kreeft, who is a professor at Boston College, says this. At the time, talking about Jesus' death on the cross, nobody saw how anything good could ever result from this tragedy. And yet God foresaw that the result would be the opening of heaven to human beings. So the worst tragedy in history brought about the most glorious event in history. And if it happened there, if the ultimate evil can result in the ultimate good, it can happen everywhere, even in our own individual lives. Here, God lifts the curtain and lets us see it. Elsewhere, he simply says, trust me. How does he touch our own suffering? Because he's been there. Because he understands suffering. Because he walks the road with us. Creeped again. Does he descend into all of our hells? Yes, he does. From the depths of a Nazi death camp, Corey Ten Boom wrote, quote, no matter how deep our darkness He's deeper still. He not only rose from the dead, he changed the meaning of death and therefore of all the little deaths, the sufferings that anticipate death and make up parts of it, he is gassed in Auschwitz. He is sneered, sneered at in Soweto. He is mocked in Northern Ireland. He is enslaved in the Sudan. He's the one we love to hate, yet to us he has chosen to return, not hatred, but love. Every tear we shed becomes his tear. He may not wipe them away yet, but he will wipe away every tear. Listen to John Stott, the theologian. He says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look in his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while I have had to turn away. And in imagination I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet. Back lacerated. Limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is a God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his sufferings. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark. The cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's own self-justification in such a world as ours. As the band comes forward, can we pray together?